Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Sharon Salzberg is quite simply an icon when it comes to meditation. She is a world-renowned teacher who's famous for her Vipassana and love and kindness methods. She's also the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society, and last but not least, a New York Times best-selling author and Sharon, it's such an honor to have you here. Uh, my first real exposure to meditation was actually through you back at Tibet House in New York City, I think in around 2010, when I went to a workshop of yours and how to learn meditation, and that had a profound impact on me. So before we start, thank you. No, oh, thank you so much for saying that. And it's it's a great delight to be with you. And uh, as you and I were chatting beforehand, it's a little bit eerie, too, because uh, I have, as well as living in Massachusetts and having a retreat center here, I have an apartment in New York City, and um, this podcast was the last thing I was supposed to do on my schedule uh, before I left New York for Massachusetts. And, and at that time, you said, we only do them in person. <laughs> it's like, it has to be done in person. And I just looked at how I was feeling and, you know, being to my shock, a senior citizen <laughs> and uh, with asthma and so on, I thought I have to get out and I can get out because I have an alternative. And so I just canceled it. So well, all of a sudden nothing is in person. <laughs> yeah. Suffice to say, I think you made the right decision. And uh, I, I think we changed our policy on podcast interviews. <laughs> yeah, I guess you did. <laughs> we, we've, we've learned to adapt. Um, but before, you know, talking about COVID-19, uh, before we get into that, I think we are experiencing in this age so much loss, so much grief. And I want to start, start with, with your journey, which you've talked about publicly. You experienced such tremendous loss at a young age. Your parents divorced when I think you were four years old. Your father disappeared. Then your mother died and lived with your grandparents, only to have your father reappear and then overdose and, and end up being in the mental health system. And, I, and the quote was, by age 16, I lived in five different family configurations, all ending in loss. And so I'm just going to stop there and say, wow, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, in the context of loss, which I think we're all experiencing, uh, you experienced significant loss at a very young age. And so how do you think all that loss at such a young age shaped you and led you to a life devoted to meditation? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it clearly propelled me. I went to college when I was 16. I went to India when I was 18 through college. And I went to India specifically to learn how to meditate. That was my intention. I went through an independent study program at the university. So I look back at that moment so many times. I take an Asian philosophy course in, in my sophomore year. And, and that's where I first really started considering, oh, there are there are things you can do to be happier, like meditation. And I was going to school in Buffalo, New York, and I looked around Buffalo and I didn't see it anywhere. So I created this project and I went to India and I look at that moment. I think that's an incredible moment. I was 18 years old. I'd never even been to California and I was applying to go to India. Why didn't I just say, I'll read some more books about this or maybe I'll go to graduate school and 
do comparative religion. It was like, I have to learn how to do this. And, and that, of course, was because of my background. You know, there was a kind of alchemy there where I, I just had felt so marginalized in my life and so different and so isolated. And so I think if I was going to use one word to describe myself back then, it would be fragmented. Mm-hmm. And the prospect of wholeness was just out there um, through whatever meditation meant. And I just had to go for it. I think the way it really shaped my life, oddly enough, um, was that uh, when I finally left India after a couple of trips, studying and practicing, it was 1974. And I went to see one of my teachers, this woman named Deepama, or Deepa's mother. That's like her nickname, Deepama. I went to see her to say goodbye for what I was sure was a very brief visit back to the States before I went back to India for the entire rest of my life. And uh, my friend, Joseph Goldstein, whom I'd met in India, had already come back. He'd been back about six months already. And Deepama said to me, when you go back, you'll be teaching with Joseph. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. It's ludicrous. And she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. And then she said to me, you really understand suffering. That's why you should teach. Wow. And then she went on to say, you can do anything you want to do with your thinking. You can't do it. That's going to stop you. And I left her room, which was like on the fourth floor of what we would call a tenement, and walked down those stairs thinking, no, I won't. I'm not going to do that. And then I came back, and as things unfolded, of course, it's exactly what I did. And every once in a while, I think, well, she didn't say it's because your scholarship is so awesome or your realization <laughs> is so terrific. She said, it's because you really understand suffering. That's why you should teach. And um, here we are, you know, in this moment where loss is certainly, as you say, both people losing people, um, people losing their vision of what today and tomorrow would look like people losing their jobs people i mean there's so much and i keep coming back for myself to um this quotation i read somewhere about how grief is love that doesn't have the normal place to go it doesn't have the normal place to land Hmm. and you know the person is not there physically or the prospects are evaporated or the you know the life we were expecting like i think i'll just go downtown and do that podcast you know is gone for now and we don't know actually what's coming next and so um i try to come back to that love and realize that's still intact there's a part of me that's still intact that's not uh overcome or destroyed by the loss so on a practical level, uh, you know, you're the master here. Walk us through that process. Like what happens in your mind? What happens in your body when you start to feel anxiety creep or a little bit of grief, loss, uncertainty? You know, I think it manifests itself in anxiety. But like walk us through like that process in real time and what that looks like for mm-hmm. you. Well, I think there are a couple of different approaches. You know, one is... Um, being able, and this is really like mindfulness training almost, it's being able to sit with a really painful feeling and first of all recognize that it's not bad or wrong or disgraceful or terrible, it's painful. And 
to actually be able to be with it, paying attention to it. Like the first thing mindfulness would tell us is try to pivot. You know, usually when we have a strong emotion going on, we're consumed with the object, the situation that provoked it. And so we kind of pivot our attention, not toward, you know, what's going to happen to my apartment, but what does it feel like? What does this feeling feel like? And so we come to the body. What what are the sensations of my body from the grief, from the fear, from the um, anxiety? And we pay attention to them uh, in a, almost like a tender way. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen teacher, would say, like with anger, he said, it's like you're holding an angry child. You're cradling it. Um so there's a lot in there, you know, being kind to ourselves and being present, not projecting like this is the only thing I'll ever feel or I'm the only one who ever feels this kind of thing, but learning how to actually just be with the feeling. Um, and then what I find is that tremendous insight arises and understanding. So, for example, um, something I often say about sitting with my own fear uh, in just this way is – that unlike the world's pronouncement, and this is very relevant today, um, that we're afraid of the unknown. Of course, I'm also afraid of the unknown, but I'm usually more afraid when I think I do know <laughs> and it's going to be really bad. And it's the stories I'm telling myself that really get me going. And if I can recognize that and I remind myself, you know what, you don't know, then there's like space and there's openness and it's actually a relief for me. So that, that was a tool that I developed in my meditation practice, but obviously that's not the only time I feel fear. You know, so when I feel it arising, I can say, remind myself, you know what, you don't know. You're projecting, you're anticipating the worst. Because, you know, usually those fantasies are not how delightful it would be to be back in New York and go to the theater. It'll, you know, they're usually like, oh my God. Um, and And so... That's one whole approach is coming closer to our feelings, uh, not buying into what is so common. Um, I shouldn't be feeling this. I've been meditating for almost 50 years. This should be gone. I spent a lot of money in therapy. Why am I feeling this? <laughs> you know, and, and adding shame and, and anger and all of those things. So another example would be sitting with something like anger, you know, a tremendous feeling of anger. And being able to pay attention to it in this way. And what we see is that these feelings are complex. They're, they're rarely just one thing. So as you sit with the anger, you notice sadness, you notice fear. And almost always with anger, you will notice a kind of kernel of helplessness. And if you can get there, then you can think of one thing to do, even if it's small, so that you don't feel utterly helpless reaching out to somebody or um, taking a walk if you can or, you know, uh, remembering that uh, you do have something you want to accomplish today, just today, you know, think, something like that. And so the more we understand our feelings in, in those ways, the more the more we can act. So on one hand sitting alone with your own thoughts can be really difficult for people. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and in quarantine, many, many people are, are doing that. 
on the other hand, sitting alone with your thoughts can be transformational. How do we walk that fine line? Well, we're kind of stuck, right? Yes, we are. (laughs) Whether it's like uh, just horrible and uh, oppressive or it's kind of also interesting and um, forward, you know, leaning in in a good sense, you know, onward leaning, like giving us some greater sense of meaning or purpose or or whatever, um, that's up to us, you know, uh, because the circumstance is not really so totally in our hands in, in terms of affecting that. And, um, I'm the interest and the desire to find help and in dealing with, you know, some really difficult feelings and, and thoughts is, is strong. You know, a lot of people are really reaching out. And I think it's great. There's also, you know, there back to your earlier questions, there are ways of using meditation just to center, like just to get a break. Take a breath. Like when we're caught in fight or flight or freeze or um, you know, the stress cycle, uh, we forget to breathe. And we're just caught in momentum and, and overcome by what's going on outside of us and uh and then the racing thoughts and it's just too much and just Developing a habit of like, okay, I'm just going to take a breath and come back to myself and come back to this moment um, is really important. Yeah, can you can you maybe walk us through a quick meditation or something? Or any advice you'd have for someone when they do catch themselves in that fight or flight moment? Yeah, I mean, usually and or commonly in meditation practice, when we talk about resting our attention on the feeling of the breath, and that's the normal natural breath. In states of high anxiety, actually, uh, given current research, there's a lot of advice to actually, it's simple, really, just have your out-breath be longer than your in-breath, and you can do it with different counts, depending on the rhythm of your breath, But or you can do it with breathing in and holding and then breathing out, but the core message is that if your out-breath is longer than your in-breath, then the sympathetic nervous system, which is governing fight or flight or freeze, um, will uh, be less pronounced. And the parasympathetic nervous system, which is going to cool out your whole being, will be more pronounced. And and so even just doing something like that is really helpful. I love that. I I do the inhale for two, hold, and exhale for four all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, And so you're trying to make sense of all this is something you've also talked a lot about is perspective. And so how can we reframe our perspective? Well, I think it's always good to have um, both the knowledge of our thoughts, you know, awareness of our thoughts. (laughs) If you can, having some sense of humor about your thought patterns, uh, or at least the ability to see them for what they are. You know, like somebody sent me an article um, written by a disaster survival specialist. I didn't know there was a field like that, but wow. there was. I have to find the link. And uh, one great thing, actually there were two great things, uh, at least from the article, that had a, a strong impact on me. One was when the author said, no one is going to get an A-plus in pandemic survival 
And it's like, give yourself a break. You know, you will get overwhelmed. You will have a hard time. You will, uh, you know, waste an afternoon doing some stupid thing. But you can start over, right? That's what resilience is. It doesn't mean attaining a state of static perfection. It means being able to start over, bounce back, come back when you have blown it, when you're gone. And that in so many ways I think of as the main skill I learned in meditation. You know, you're sitting with the breath, let's say, for example. Your mind goes all over the place. You learn to let go and come back and let go and come back. And there it is. No one's going to get an A-plus in this. So <laughs> when you see yourself haranguing yourself and criticizing yourself so mercilessly, it's like laugh, you know? Like I would actually say to myself, no one's going to get an A-plus in this. Have, have the, fun with it. You know, yeah. Another interesting thing in the article was um, they said, uh, do some gratitude reflection. And that I found very interesting because a lot of people poo-poo that kind of practice. Like a gratitude reflection would be something like at the end of the day, write down three things that you're grateful for from the day. And uh, it could be small things. You know, it doesn't have to be something immense or grandiose. Although somebody once told me they were looking for one thing a month to be grateful for. And I said, I don't think that's enough, really. Uh, the usual advice is three things a day. And, and um, <clears throat> a lot of people poo-poo it because they think it's phony or you're going to be overlooking real suffering and trying to pretend everything's so nice. And if you are in some oppressive situation, you're going to be grateful for crumbs, you know, and not stand up for yourself and things like that. But what research is actually showing is that that's not true, that if we practice gratitude, first of all, you're getting a broader perspective on things, that we're so wired to look at what's wrong, that um, we feel depleted, we feel overcome, we feel exhausted. And if we could spend a little bit of time thinking about what's right, what we have to be grateful for, Again, we feel replenished or we feel restored, and that's part of resilience. Um, and there's also um, some research that is showing more recently that if you do a kind of gratitude reflection, if you develop more gratitude, you actually – you're not complacent and satisfied with crumbs and things like that. You really – you want to see other people enjoy something substantial or something meaningful and 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 that it really lifts you up for taking action in some way which i think is really interesting it, it's just astounding when you think of meditation mindfulness gratitude uh where science has, has come so far mm -hmm. i'm curious is there any other research that comes to mind that's that's recent or maybe something taking place which to you is really interesting as we look to advance you know mindfulness practice um, I mean, there's so much. Uh, Barbara Fredrickson in the uh, University of North Carolina is most well known for doing uh, loving kindness research. But um, she recently did a study uh, looking at, and this is also interesting for our time, looking at moments of mindfulness. You know, um, there are the dedicated periods of, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, however long we sit, let's say, um, in practice. And then there's what we call short moments many times. 
taking a breath before you press send for the email. You know, you write the email and you just take a few breaths before you press send. Or uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has a pretty famous one, don't pick up the phone on the first ring. Let it ring three times and breathe and then you pick it up. Or every now and then don't multitask, just... Drink your cup of tea, feeling the warmth of the teacup and smelling the tea and tasting the tea. And so um, you could call it short moments many times. You could call it informal practice, something like that. So Barbara did a study on that, just that, and found that it was very impactful for people, even just to do that. My um, bias, I guess, toward a daily formal practice, however long it is, it doesn't have to be long, um, is really more because I think that's what makes the other stuff real. Mm. You know, otherwise it's an easy story to tell. You can be mindful doing anything, but will I really be? You know, <laughs> I'm drinking the cup of tea and on the conference call and on Zoom now. You know, so um, you mentioned loving kindness, and when I mm-hmm. think of Sharon Salzberg, I think of loving kindness mm-hmm. and Vipassana. So. Let's go back to, let's start with loving kindness. Can you walk us through, for those unfamiliar, what loving kindness is and and why it's so powerful? Um, Well, if you you talk about different streams or or kind of larger categories of meditation, you could say mindfulness or insight meditation or vipassana, which means insight, um, is one, and loving kindness is kind of another. And they're very connected, but stylistically they're different and they're sort of designed differently. I think of loving kindness as very similar to gratitude practice actually in that um, we may be stepping away from our more normal way of paying attention to pay attention differently. So I call it a stretch. You know, it's like when I first heard about gratitude practice, I thought, eh, I don't know, you know, like, uh, and I realized that it would not come automatically for me that it would take some intentionality to experiment, to see what it was like, because I'm much more conditioned, my family conditioning, my cultural conditioning to come to the end of the day and see what I can complain about <laughs> rather than notice what I have to be grateful for. You know, I didn't show up in the way I'd hoped for and that other person disappointed me. And back in the old days, there was always an airline, you know, or, a phone service, and um, and it would take not force and not coercion, but a real spirit of experimentation to say, okay, what else happened today? You know, what about what I have to be grateful for? And so loving kindness is very much that kind of practice. Usually if we're thinking about ourselves, we may be going through the list for the billionth time of everything wrong with us. And what about if we stretch to wish ourselves well? You know, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. Um, or here's another example that's kind of eerie right now. There are often people we ignore or look through or discount. And in the formal loving kindness practice, that would be the category of the neutral person. Uh, somebody we don't strongly like or dislike. And in teaching loving kindness, when we talk about the neutral person, we suggest, well, why don't you try to choose someone you run into now and then? Because over time, as you do this practice, offering them these phrases silently, you know, maybe happy, maybe peaceful, things like that, 
you get to notice if anything changes in your feeling about them or your relationship to them. So I was reading a meditation like that out loud to be recorded the other day. And for 35 or 40 years, when we've come to the the neutral person, we've said, try to check out person in the supermarket. They're the kind of person we're usually completely indifferent to, right? That we look right through and just, you know, hold them in your heart and, and do this meditation and see what happens in a little while. So I'm reading it out loud and I thought, oh my God, you know, how could we be indifferent to these people? Like, you know, they're, they're a link in the fact that we get to eat and this is really amazing. And, and so, um, but that's the point of it. You know, you're not trying to cook up a feeling you don't have or, or make believe, but you're paying attention differently on purpose. And so you see what emerges in terms of a sense of connection. It reminds me when I was a child, I, I don't know, it, it, when the, the first time I think I experienced homelessness, well, I, I saw a homeless person and my mother said to me, you know, try to hold that person. That, that, that person used to be a child and have parents or, or maybe not parents, but that, imagine that child, that maybe that person as a child and hold that thought. And it, it, this idea of, uh, it, it, it changed my perspective at a very young age. Um, and that's powerful. It's very powerful. And so Vipassana, which I also think, I'm curious, Vipassana seems to be having a moment, everyone in Silicon Valley, and Jack Dorsey's going on Vipassana, and everyone's yeah, like, yeah, I'm curious, yeah. like, one, like, what, what do you think is resonating right now? Where Vipassana seems to be the hottest meditation in town. Uh, and just, wow, <laughs> I'm curious. Explain to people what yeah. it is, too. Sure. Well, Vipassana is a word in uh, Pali, which is a language of the original Buddhist text, and it means insight meditation. There are many styles and many methods of doing insight meditation. The, the core uh, engine of insight is mindfulness. So when you hear mindfulness talked about, it's really within the category of insight meditation. The term Vipassana uh, in the West is is largely used by one particular lineage of of that kind of meditation, which was um, uh, brought to prominence by S. N. Goenka, who was my first teacher in, in India. Um, and so, usually, when people say vipassana instead of mindfulness or or insight meditation, they're referring to that one style. And so that's what you know Jack went to or whatever. <laughs> I think people people hold that thought. I'm going to a cabin somewhere in the woods with, uh, you know, not much food, no talking, and it's an extended period of time. I think that that's <laughs> so people. Yeah, have fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, those retreats are silent, and many retreats are silent. In fact, uh, back when we had <laughs> congregations of retreats, um, and uh, there is a lot of renunciation. People are often asked on a voluntary basis if they don't want to give up their device, you know, so that uh, the world that you're inhabiting it becomes your world. And it's, it's really very interesting. So what do you think about Vipassana? It, what is it about the practice where it seems like a lot of people have breakthroughs 
What is it about that practice that can lead to breakthroughs for for people? You mean that particular style of mindfulness? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Essentially, like being being alone with your thoughts with for an extended period of time. That's in silence, if you will. Um, well, that particular approach or method, first of all, is very structured. You know, um, there a certain amount of days of just uh, paying attention to your breath at the nostrils and um, you really get to see a lot. You know, I certainly saw a lot. I'm going because I said it was my first teacher and somewhat famous amongst the group of people, many of whom are still my very close friends that I met at that retreat for marching up to him and saying, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating, thereby laying blame exactly where I felt it belonged, which was clearly on him. And, of course, I've been hugely angry, but I hadn't seen it. And so this was like a massive dose of introspection. It was like, look at that. Um, It was only later I learned uh, to have more kindness toward myself in terms of what was being revealed. Um, And then you go on after those three days to... Uh, really focusing on bodily sensations, which is going his main thing. And so, and it's in a very patterned way. Some version of that was made um, even more popular in the West by John Kabat Zinn in terms of a body scan. It's a little different, but it's the same basic idea of moving your attention in a patterned way through your body. And so, um, it's a very healing technique, it's a very powerful technique. And um, you kind of know when you're doing it when you're not, which is very helpful for the muddle-minded of us. Um, you know, you you really have a sense of uh, energy and and clarity that comes, in, and it's a it's a very powerful way to practice. And so, you know, as we think about practice today, you know, in real happiness, you've talked about this notion that the mind has the power to make us happy when times are tough and, and times are definitely tough right now. And on the flip side, the mind has the power to make us depressed when things are good. So c- can we unpack that a little bit and why that's what, what we can really do right now? Yeah, I, mean, I think I think it's interesting to look in terms of add-ons. You know, it is a really hard time, and I think we have to give ourselves a break and just acknowledge that and um, not be down on ourselves because we're not getting an A-plus in pandemic survival, you know, and just say, okay, I'm doing the best I can. That's important. Um, and to to understand it's always been this way, you know, when amazing things are happening and uh you're depressed anyway, or you you can't let people help you when they're trying. You know, you can't acknowledge that you need help. Um, it's not going to go well. It's not going to feel right. You know, even though you're in some beautiful surrounding with a lot of opportunity, and and when things are bad and hard and um, you know just difficult. To feel all alone is very different than to feel that you're a part of a community. And to feel uh, a certainty about a very grim future and try to bear it right now. You know, not only am I going through this, but it's never going to change. It's only gonna, If it changes, it's only going to get worse. And let me just try to experience 
the rest of my life right now and it's pretty bad. That's not going to help. And so it, it's really, really using the same tools I might have suggested or practiced myself in a great time, you know. Uh, it's just it's really kind of pressing now that we find ways of of uh, feeling so, like I you know describe myself some sense of wholeness, some sense of some resource inside. Because I think all the time of how the stress cycle is described, and it's always described as a dynamic. There's the stressor, the incident, the situation, and then there's the sense of resource with which it's met. And for me, that resource, it's twofold. One is a sense of inner strength and capacity, and the other is a sense of connection to others. And so when times are tough, the word faith comes to mind. And I know you have a lot of thoughts around that word, faith, and and Mm -hmm. what it means. What does faith mean to you? I wrote a book on faith called I, Faith. I, I know. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I have a, a Buddhist um, training, and in uh, Buddhist teaching, they kind of parse words in excruciating fashion, you know. So uh, faith does not mean belief. It does not mean dogma. It does not mean aligning yourself with a, a certain vision someone else has of what's true. Um, it, it classically means offering your heart, giving over your heart to something or someone. And um, in, in the Buddhist teaching, it's not like a commodity that you either have or you don't have and you don't have enough or you're going to be condemned. It's, it's much more about uh, the sense of confidence and clarity and self-respect that comes from tuning into one's own inner strengths and a bigger picture of life. So that uh, faith is also about connecting to perspective, as you said, this bigger picture. Um, it's, it's different than um, hope, actually, in that excruciating parsing of of language because hope might be too small. It's like, I hope my life in New York looks exactly the way it will. And in fact, I'm sure it will look exactly the way it did before. And uh, I real, of course, we hope. We, you know, that's just human nature. But if we get attached to that hope, then nothing else will do. You know, like uh, some alternative is not good enough. It's never good enough. Or uh, having to wait because not everything manifests on our timetable is not good enough. And um, we get afraid. Maybe it won't really happen that way. How can I How can I survive if it doesn't happen that way? Well, it might not happen that way and you still might survive, you know, because it'll happen another way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so in some ways that what they call hope is they're not counseling hopelessness, but they're saying if you get attached to a very narrow set of expectations – you are likely to suffer. And it's a bigger world than that. And there's more possibility and there's more possibility for your happiness than just that one narrow little strand. And so um, that's when they would use the word faith, that you can be connected to this bigger picture of life and, and a sense of not being so alone and cut off, but you know, having a, 
uh, a sense of a community around you. And in this odd time, that community could be like the entire globe, you know, it's, it's like, look at that. So in this odd time when we are alone and there, there is time and, and for, for many people, time is ample and you know, in trying to make the most of that time and there is opportunity and something you've talked about is using meditation as a way to make space for action. Mm -hmm. So can you talk more about that? Well, some of it is, is a little bit like, um, what I was saying with, uh, you know, seeing the helplessness at the core, a lot of our anger. And if we can get there, then we can determine one small thing we can do, or one thing we can do each day, or uh, take some action. And, um, you know, actualize something that you care about. You know, it's, it's an interesting time, too, because a lot of our sense of accomplishment may have been taken away. Uh, you know, I needed a promotion at work, or I needed this stature, or I needed whatever and uh you know there's not much to i mean if your needs are met you know food and whatever there's not much to buy except masks you know which i find myself online buying i think that's very funny um since i'm not going anywhere <laughs> but it's something to do um you know that there's a way in which i think it was always healthier to reimagine our lives so that um maybe you didn't get uh, you know, the promotion that you thought was the be all and end all at work, for example, but you had a commitment to uh, being compassionate or respectful to everyone you encountered. That's a different kind of goal. And, and that kind of goal can take a lot of prominence in days like this. Again, you know, people's needs need to be met. So, it's not nothing if you don't have a job or, you know, uh, sure. it can be very significant. But apart from that, the dreams that we once had, well, maybe they, they should be looked at, you know, and here we are. And people say, you know, they get so much satisfaction out of what in a normal course of events could have seemed kind of meaningless or or silly and like I have I have a friend who's an acupuncturist who uh, is in a hot spot in terms of the virus and it's very difficult for her and uh, she also couldn't practice acupuncture because you know there was sure. that, that kind of close contact and she said she got really depressed and because it, it's not just a way of earning a living it's a it's like a vocation and she couldn't do it and and then she got involved in some project of making goggles for uh, hospital workers. And all of a sudden, you know, all that energy and that uh, need to contribute and that sense of care and compassion had an outlet, and she just found it. 
It's it's interesting you mentioned acupuncturists. It's something that's been on our minds. All the all the healers out there, the energy workers, acupuncturists, yoga teachers. You know, they they've come to those practices, those professions, out of a desire, a need, a purpose to help others and and be close to people and 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 use energy as a method to heal. And now that's been taken away. And I can mm-hmm. only imagine. Oh, that's tough. Yeah, it's very tough. And, and so. There are so many opinions out there <laughs> on everything. I could just close right there, but specific to uh, how we're going to emerge from this or how we'd like to emerge from this. From I'm curious from, from your perspective of someone who's been in this field, dedicated her life to this field for 50 plus years, what, what's your hope? From your perspective on how what how we're going to emerge from this? Well, my hope would be, you know, that we would reimagine where happiness comes from. And uh, it's a funny time for that book, you know, to be reissued because it came out ten years ago, and uh, I remember when it came out, and and uh, I was on tour with it, and people would say, um, you know, happiness was was not that popular word it was like considered a little bit like being stupid and <laughs> you know like being happy go lucky or being conflict avoidant or something like that and things have changed you know and uh, I mean it's obviously never what I meant by happiness anyway but um, things really have changed and, and I would hope that people would um, care for one another I mean in some ways it's like interconnection and the fact that our lives are all connected has always been true. And somebody sent me a quote of me the other day, which was from, I don't know, 2012 or something in which I said, you know, interconnection is not just a spiritual understanding. If you, economics shows us this and uh, science shows us this and environmental consciousness certainly shows us this. Even epidemiology shows us this. That what happens over there doesn't nicely stay over here and doesn't stay over there. It comes over here and what we do, it matters because two will ripple out along the lines of interconnection. And people used to say to me, what's epidemiology? You know, or why are you talking about that? And, and uh, but it's so true, right? And in some ways we're seeing like the terrible face of interconnection right now. And the other face is a sense of compassion, and connection to all beings and and wouldn't it be great if we emerged with with more of that well you mentioned real happiness coming out 10 years ago and being more relevant than ever um does that have you thinking about your legacy and what you want your legacy to be um I don't necessarily think in those terms. I mean, the years go by and, uh, you know, Loving Kindness, that book came out 25 years ago. And and that's probably really the core of my legacy or, you know, how I'll be remembered, I guess, because uh, in terms of Western teachers, it wasn't really done as a practice uh, very much then. And, um, the Insight Meditation Society, we started in 1976. Wow. And I'd like to get to the 50th anniversary, actually. It's one of my goals. Um, 
in terms of existing, you know, as a place of congregation. And uh, so uh, there, there are things I've done, and, and not because I'm so special, really, and not because um, I had a vision of them being impactful, but just because they seemed like the thing to do. Yeah, you know, when you think of your childhood, I'm curious, how much do you think was, you know, destiny? You were born to do this. Uh, I think about now, and I think about Deepama telling me to teach because I understood suffering, and I think I was born for this. And so in your journey, you know, lots of people, I'm sure, give you advice, some good, some bad. I am curious, what's the, what's the best advice you've ever gotten <laughs> ever is a little hard or you know, know something that comes to mind best and worst what what comes to mind worst doesn't come to mind okay so that's good i'm sure there's a lot of that but <laughs> uh i mean because i've had magnificent teachers you know and uh for and many of them so um but in a less lofty sense um <laughs> I'll tell you a piece of advice that I, I use a lot, which I think is relevant also to our time, because I was uh, in the hospital last year. I had uh, sepsis, and I was really sick, and then um, got better, obviously, and uh, which is another reason that I'm, you know, I'm a senior citizen with pre-existing conditions. It's like, oh. Um, but anyway, so when I finally was getting up and walking, it was with a walker in the hospital, as one does up and down the corridors of the hospital with a physical therapist. And uh, at one point she said to me, it's not a race, you know. Mm. She said, you'll go further if you just stop now and then and give yourself a break. And that became my mantra, actually. It's not a race, you know. You'll go further if you can just stop now and then and give yourself a break. And uh, it's actually, it was advice in the classical sense of advice and I use it. It's useful. I love that. And so, you know, you mentioned, you know, you're a teacher, you're a healer in, in many respects. Um, and I, and I all think at some level at our core, no matter what we do, we all need to be teachers and, and healers. How do we become better at that as individuals out there? Uh, I think it's truthfulness, and I mean, for me, it's one's own practice. You know, I, I I have a meditation practice. I don't feel like I'm beyond it. You know, I just really uh, do. I practice every day, and having that mind state of always being a student, I think, is and always learning is is a really is a really good one. And then I think it's. Um, there's a lot of letting go there too, you know. It's like you do the best you can, and you offer what you can, and uh, you, uh, you know, don't see the room that I'm in, but I'm in a room um, where there's a whole range of cups, off mugs, off to the side of me, and they originated with. Um, uh, when we first opened the Insight Meditation Society, we received within a month we received two letters that were remarkable for how they were addressed. And the first, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, 
was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> I love that because, of course, it's what we all are trained to want. I want it all instantly. But the second really became my favorite. And that one, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society. And I thought, that is perfect because in so many times in my life, my meditation life, where I felt like nothing was happening, and it was only later I could look back and say, oh, look at that. Something was happening. And so many times in my life of service where I might think that went nowhere. <laughs> only when I'm lucky to have someone come back, sometimes years later, and say something like, oh, you know, you gave me that book and it didn't mean anything to me at the time, but my life situation has just changed so much. And I picked up the book and it was perfect. You know, so I'm a giant fan of the Hindsight Meditation Society. And every time IMS, the Insight Meditation Society, has some significant anniversary, uh, I say, can't we make mugs? Can't we make T-shirts that say Hindsight Meditation Society? That'd be so great. And every time they say no. And then the last significant one we had, which was, I guess, 45 years old, um, somebody made me all these cups just as a gift which are here in this room with me, um, let's say Hindsight Meditation Society. So there's a lot of letting go in, in that kind of service and caring. Uh, you do the best you can. You offer what you can. You let go of that sense of, I need this immediate dramatic result. So there, there are two things you said, which I want to unpack a little bit. One, you said instant meditation, where my head went immediately was sort of the, the, the rebirth or in psychedelics. Mm -hmm. uh, what's, I know that's a whole nother podcast, but if there's a quick take, what is your, your, your quick take on psychedelics as a, as a tool in our wellness toolkit, if you will? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the ways it's being researched are, are really fantastic, you know, uh, PTSD, which everyone's going to have, uh, people who are terminally ill, you know, it's just tremendous to to see the healing potential. And obviously, I mean, I'm a child of the 60s, you know, it's different uh, in, in terms of, as we say, set and setting, um, you know, that uh, these are not street drugs and these are people um, in the care and, and context of, of uh, you know, some some wisdom and, and not recklessness and so on. So, um, I mean, in terms of spiritual practice, uh, the endless comment from all of my teachers would always be things like, well, it gets you in the room maybe, but it doesn't necessarily let you live there. Hmm. Things like yeah. that. So there was always a kind of emphasis on that. Well, on one, you know, in some in some respect, it is everything I read is just so powerful. On we talk about PTSD and, and serious depression, and, and obviously set and setting mm -hmm. and medical professionals. Uh, but it's also not every. My opinion is it's not the everyday practice of love and kindness. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and, and you can't just bypass the practice of mindfulness and go straight to LSD or what, whatever it may, might be or psilocybin 
without doing the work, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm also letting go. We, we talked about it a couple of times. Why do we have so much? And, and I remember that from our, you know, when I first uh, learned from you in 2010 and going to, uh, I'll never forget, letting go, letting go, let the thought go. Why do we have such trouble with letting go? <laughs> well, uh, I guess we hold on because we feel deficient in some way, right? Like we, we need that uh, pattern of thinking to prevail or we don't know who we are. We don't know or we don't have enough, you know, like we, we need um, a tremendous amount, perhaps we imagine, of, of material stuff or we need um, everyone to praise us without a single exception you know like don't read your Amazon reviews whatever you do um, <laughs> does Sharon Salzberg read her Amazon reviews no I actually don't anymore okay. but I, I, I wrote a, a subsequent book to real happiness called real happiness at work and I I read an Amazon review which said uh don't trust this woman. She's never worked. And I thought, never worked. You know, I work seven days a week. Like, I mean, in those days, literally, the only day I took off all year was my birthday. Um, and I said, you could say I've never had a corporate job or I've never had a boss. Both those things are accurate, but you never worked. You know, and then I just stopped reading videos. And, and so <laughs> I have to laugh at that one. Uh, you know, in, in, in COVID-19, when we're all practicing social distancing and, and maybe we're, we're lucky enough to be, you know, with family or some loved ones around us, and many of us aren't, and we all have images of, you know, where we're going to travel to or what we're going to, what restaurant we're going to go to or, or who we're going to hug. And I, I've, I've joked, I've always joked, like, I've never met the Dalai Lama, but like, if I could just hug, oh man, I bet he's an amazing hugger. What, what, you know, the Dalai Lama, I'm curious, like what, what's he, what's he like up close and personal? Uh, he's, I mean, I would never presume to initiate a hug, but he's pretty huggable, (laughs) you know, uh, I think he's as genuinely loving as rumor has it. And, (laughs) um, uh, I've seen him with, I'm not, you know, we're not friends or anything, but. I've seen him with all kinds of people, you know, leaving a hotel, for example, and the entire staff lined up, gardeners, maids, everybody to say goodbye. And I've seen him go down those lines one by one and pay absolute, complete attention to each person. And uh, some of it, that sense of, of being loved is that quality of attention. It's just so full on. Um, and he's pretty great. And so for anyone listening who's, you know, maybe had a meditation practice or a mindfulness practice at one time or another, and, and it's, you know, fallen off or, or maybe this is new. What's, what's your advice to those people? What's your pep talk? How, how can, you know, what, what's your call to arms for everyone out there listening? Well, neuroscientists tell me that, just seven to nine minutes of meditation a day will change your brain, which, um, and I usually say in response, well, I don't know that I go for the bare minimum, you know, but 
it's like not a huge investment in time. You don't have to feel, you know, overwhelmed. Like I've got to sit for six hours before I get any result. But seven to nine minutes a day, we can actually do. And the important thing is doing it. You've got, you know, you can't just admire it from afar. Like when I first wrote um, Real Happiness and I was on tour, so many people would come up to me to get the book signed and say, I'm buying your book for my cousin. I could never do it, but it'd be really good for them. <laughs> and, and I think, well, nice for your cousin and nice for me, but what's this I could never do it thing? You know, why do we leave ourselves out? Why do we marginalize ourselves? It's like, you've got to do it and then decide if it's worth pursuing or not, which is an important decision. You don't have to do it forever. Um, so usually I just say, choose a structure that works for you. Let's say seven to nine minutes a day. Let's let's round that out to 10. 10 minutes a day for a week, for a month, whatever is actually going to be doable. And then do it. And does it count if this, the, the call of the 10 minutes is a culmination of those mini moments, if you will, where I'm acknowledging? Apparently it does count. So you can, you can just be, I'm count. acknowledging this this beautiful warm cup of black coffee and or i'm feeling my foot as i'm walking uh -huh. and i'm acknowledging uh -huh. it so that you can do that throughout the day anyone can do that yeah yeah you can do that i i have a kind of like i said a bias toward those dedicated periods because i forget during the rest of the day so often unless i actually have that pattern of like it's like a little period of strength training or something so can we close with a you know really brief simple meditation to leave everyone with so if they're if they're listening and they just want to incorporate it just be a you know simple 30 seconds or a minute that someone can you know extend but is there anything you can close with to get people back on track we need to get back on track <laughs> okay i mean for for something like that length i would probably say Okay, let's just settle our attention on the feeling of the breath. And if the breath doesn't work for you, for physical reasons or emotional reasons, some other sensation in your body, something that is happening anyway. Let's just all bring our attention there. You can close your eyes or not. It's up to you. Let's say it's the breath, just the normal, natural breath. And the operative word is rest. We're going to rest our attention on the feeling of the breath. And very crucially, when you find your mind wandering, the past, the future, you fall asleep, don't worry about it. That's the magic moment, the one that comes next. You can let go. Bring your attention back to the breath. And that's it. I love it. Bring your attention back to the breath. Let go. It's that simple, right? It's not easy to do, but it's that simple. <laughs> well, I think, I think the idea of letting go and that it's okay to have a thought, good or bad, and just letting it go, that's powerful in and of itself. Don't yeah. be too hard on yourself. Well, Sharon, 
It is an honor and a privilege to have you here. Thank you for all that you do. Uh, because of you, the world is a, a better place. So thank you. Thank you so much.